Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host this week, Dr. John Cook. I'm the chair of communication at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. UTRGV is the sponsor of this program. With me today is Dr. Stephen Snyder, who's an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, New York, and is a guest on major media outlets nationwide, a regular contributor to Psychology Today and the Huffington Post, and one of America's most trusted authorities on sex and relationships. He lives with his wife and children in New York City. The book is a great book for February, the month of love. We're recording this in February. The book is called Love Worth Making, How to Have Ridiculously Great Sex in a Long-Lasting Relationship. Dr. Snyder, welcome to the program. Thank you so, so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. This is a, this is a great read, and uh, it makes some important points. Um, and, and one of the emphasis that I, I really want us to get to is, is the fact that, you know, satisfying sex is not really that much about the plumbing. You have a great introduction about uh, your wife is not a lawnmower and that lubrication and friction are not the key. In fact, I want to use your words here. If you really want to know, what you really want to know is how to have great sex with someone you care about and all the technical expertise, sexual science, and erotic novelty in the world probably aren't going to help you very much. You need to understand sexual feeling. Thank you. So this is a book about sexual feelings. It's definitely a book about sexual feelings, and the reason I wrote it is because I've been a sex therapist in practice for 30 years, and I couldn't really find anything that dealt with sexual feelings. The only book that I could really find that did that was a book from a 19, late 1970s um, by a writer named Avoda Offit, um, who I met once before she died in 2015. She wrote a book called The Sexual Self, and uh, one of the things that I really had fun with in the book is taking a lot from Avoda Offit's book and updating it and commenting on it and taking some of her ideas and kind of fleshing them out in light of what we've learned in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was interesting. Uh, the, the, the way you extracted her quotes uh, fit really well and integrated well into the book. Um, let's talk about the sexual self, because that's, yes. that's the first thing I think we need to get in touch with. Absolutely. Um, the... Uh, Sexual self is something you hear a lot about in books, getting in touch with your sexual self, talking to your sexual self, but nobody really talks about what the sexual self is. And the new idea that I put forth in the book, it's actually not exactly new because Sigmund Freud came up with it 100 years ago in his three essays on the theory of sexuality, and it's been floating around in the ether in the psychotherapy community for a long, long time, but it's the first time somebody's put it in a sex book is that the sexual self is fundamentally infantile. That it doesn't really understand all the things that it's being told to do these days, like pleasure your partner or work on your relationship or anything like that. It fundamentally just wants to be enjoyed and to have fun. It's really that has the mentality of a child from zero to two. It just wants everybody to say it's wonderful, put on a party hat, and uh, everybody have ice cream and cake and say yay. Mm-hmm. I know. I That's know where that, we all live. Yeah, I know that in pop psych we talk about the child ego state or the child within. Uh, even uh-huh. when we grow to full stature adults, there still is a child inside us, and and that's part of what the sexual self is comprised of. Yes, absolutely. You could be as mature and as humble and as evolved as as you might get in your outer life, but when you get into bed, you still want to be treated like the most important person in the world, and that's really where it's at. Mm-hmm. 
And if you're getting all the pleasure uh, that you can and your partner looks fantastic, but you're still not being treated as a very special and important person by that person and you don't really feel they're enjoying you, forget it. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And that's why. Because the, in the sexual self is a self that yearns to be enjoyed. You know, we know that children, if they don't get enjoyed, they don't thrive. If a parent just keeps them safe and well-nourished and gives them good values and good instruction, but the kid never really feels their parent really, really enjoys who they are, they suffer. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing in a love relationship. And, uh, and let's talk about that love relationship when it comes to sexual arousal because um, so much focus is on, on physical arousal, but there's psychological aspects to arousal. You mentioned attention, regression, and validation. Can we talk yes. about what those are? I'm thrilled to be asked more about that. Um, attention, the way you know you're aroused is it grabs your attention. If it doesn't grab your attention, it's not arousing you. That's what arousal does. And what it does is it really shanghais our attention. It hijacks it um, from whatever else we were doing. So if we get aroused, all of a sudden we can't concentrate on anything else. Mm-hmm. So that's a really, really important indicator. Um, we lose IQ points. Yes, I like that. And <laughs> you wouldn't pass we, the IQ test when you're aroused. <laughs> you wouldn't. Again, good sex makes you pretty dumb, and great sex makes you really stupid. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's good. Um, and... Uh, it tend to make you not so conscious of time. That's why sometimes teenagers, I had a lot of fun with this with my kids when they were just getting to their teenage years. and They'd come in late, you know, really, really late uh, being out with their friends. And I'd think, eh, somebody finally got aroused. Mm-hmm. Um, people, who are, people who are aroused um, tend to show up late for things. Uh-huh. And the next thing is regression. We become rather selfish in that moment. And uh, we may feel very connected to our partner, partner, but we don't really care to hear what happened in their day. Yeah, this and is a, this is very different than what I usually hear. You know, you may feel close to your partner, but it's a selfish kind of closeness. That's not often what we see in, 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 in things about intimacy. Exactly. They usually all have to do with generosity, you know, how to please your partner, how to give your partner a wonderful experience. And my experience as a sex therapist is that leads to a lot of boring sex. (laughs) Yes, it can give people climaxes, and it's an efficient way to get a climax if you know how your partner exactly likes to be stroked. So there's certainly something to say for it. Um, And it's a lot better than not knowing how your partner likes to be stroked. But if that's all you're doing, you're missing the point. Because nobody, you know, I always tell patients, what, I ask patients, what's more erotic, somebody who really is giving you everything you want or somebody who's really enjoying you very passionately? And most people will say, oh, yeah, the latter, obviously. Mm-hmm. So uh, regression is a, is a key part of sexual arousal. If it doesn't regress you to like an infantile level, then there's something worrisome there. Mm-hmm. And the final thing is validation, which in some ways is the most important. People, when they're in an erotic moment, with somebody they feel connected to, very often they describe, yeah, this is, this is really the heart of me. This is where I really live. Everything else is just a packaging. This is inside. If you really take me apart and get to the core of me, this is, really wh- this is where I belong. Um, so my theory is that the reason for that feeling is that's where we all start. We all start as infants being enjoyed, and being treated like the most important person in the universe by everyone around us. Everyone's happy to see us. Mm-hmm. And so it's that feeling of validation. By the way, this is why people with alternative sexualities uh, very often feel frustrated in the mainstream. You know, the classic example 40 years ago was when uh, people who were uh, 
same-sex attracted would be in the closet, and they'd be trying to make it, you know, at heterosexual marriage. And I frequently would hear from them, you know, everything works. I mean, you know, the genitals fit together and everything, and it, uh, you know, erections and wetness and hardness and climaxes happen, but it doesn't validate me. It doesn't, doesn't take me anywhere special. It doesn't make me have that feeling of, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, one one of the first, uh, and I, I'm assuming you changed the names to protect the innocent in, in your book, but you, you... Actually, more than that. Uh-huh. There, there are ethical guidelines now. Um, it requires more than changing names. The ethical standard is that any patient involved could read the description and not identify themselves. Ah, okay. So they're all deep, deep, deep composites composed of hundreds of people. Okay. Well, let's look at the first composite then, a, a young couple, newly married, Carmen and Scott... Um, and uh, she's not. She's distressed. They've recently married, but she's not feeling anything. Absolutely, and it's a common thing that I hear from women. Mm-hmm. I just I don't feel anything. Sometimes it seems to be kind of physical. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's a little hard to tell. And it's panicky because she's recently married. Does this mean I made a mistake? Mm-hmm. So she's uh, uh, concerned, and, and you're pretty sure that, that that it's her sexual self trying to tell her something. Absolutely, and the reason is. Because I say, is there a time when you do feel something? One of the, the nice things about being a sex therapist is you get to ask all these, these little questions that, that you know, people don't generally get to ask. She says, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I really do get kind of dumb and happy, and I get that feeling of validation, and I get all that stuff, as long as we're outside the bedroom. Once we get into the bedroom, everything goes to hell. Yeah. And that and that that may be a common thing amongst many couples. When we move from the living room to the bedroom, suddenly things change, and a lot of it in in this uh, mythical couple is about um, he wants her her to have an orgasm, and uh, she wants to have it to make him happy. And so there's a Absolutely. lot of pressure. And so what they, they do is they're because they're okay. If I interrupt, or should I just let you finish? Go I'm ahead. <laughs> um, she uh, uh, he's following what we call the conventional script for heterosexual couples, mm-hmm. which is they go through foreplay, uh, genitals get in touch with each other, and then somebody has people have climaxes. And he wants to do the script, otherwise he feels like a failure, which is how most people do it. And what we teach them to do is throw out the script, instead just focus on holding on to that really, really immersive feeling that you get when you're on the couch. And it turns out that it's not so easy for her to have a climax. And the best way for her to have a climax, as it is for a lot of women uh, with couple sex, is to use their own hand. And once she gives herself permission to use her own hand, then she can have it, and he's happy, and she's happy, and they can just do their own thing. Mm -hmm. This is another thing in here that's a switch from what you, you hear so often, and that is don't get responsible for the other person's pleasure. Get responsible for your own. Oh, without question. I think if you asked any sex therapist, they would tell you that. We all learn that pretty quickly. Um, because here's the thing, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating story. You know, you know Masters and Johnson? Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, they uh, began to study couples, they became famous. And so couples would come to St. Louis, uh, where they were at the University of Washington, and spend two weeks with Masters and Johnson. And so then they, they were in the position of having to figure out what to do with these couples. And so they developed a technique which Virginia Johnson remembered from childhood, where her mother would just touch her face to calm her down. And they began with this technique saying, you know, just just do this experience with your partner just to kind of give them pleasure. And what they rapidly realized was that 
the instruction to give your partner pleasure was a demand, and people don't respond sexually when they feel like they're faced with demands. Mm-hmm. That's another reason it's important to know that the sexual self is infantile. You know, if you give a two-year-old a demand, it just doesn't do it. Um, the sexual self is the same way. And then the fascinating thing was that the recipient of touch, it was also a demand on them uh-huh. to respond and to enjoy it. So in the later years, Master Johnson said, you know, just touch for your own interest. You can have any kind of experience you want. And they can have any other kind of experience they want. We can separate the two of you, and nobody has to be able has to be under pressure to do anything. And that's when the the, the technique really, really uh, matured. So it's not about pleasuring your partner. I, I say that over and over again. Mm-hmm. There's a. Uh... There's a concern some people have when it's not working from time to time. You mentioned uh, in the Joy of Sex section about um, people who feel their partners just don't enjoy them anymore. There's an example yeah. of a guy who has an email correspondence with a woman in the office, and her pleasure in writing him touched his sexual soul, and he had enough sense to know that that wasn't that he, he needed to find his way back to his mate. But but often they don't. I mean, the, the part, part of what you're saying here is that maybe monogamy is not that realistic a, an approach to the society. Well, it's a really good question. I, you know, I, I, uh, that takes us into a whole other realm. But I'm happy to mm-hmm. to uh, to talk about that. Would that would that you think be uh, something your your listeners would be interested Absolutely. in? Absolutely. Okay, so let's go there. Um, the uh, I take a different approach to that. As you probably know, there are extremes in sex writing, just like there are extremes in politics. And there's a vast, empty space in the middle. On the one hand, you've got your progressives, who tend to be a little, you know, uh, non-conforming to the traditional script. They may be non-monogamous. They may be uh, polyamorous, uh, often alternative sexualities, sometimes transgender. They celebrate diversity. And they're into... uh, making sure that nobody gets shamed for who they are. And given the history of our doing that as a society, they have a lot, they have a lot of good points. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't reach a lot of regular, ordinary people in America who think that's just fine, but, but what, do I, what, 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 what do I do if I really want to uh, be erotically happy? And just simply just looking at, you know, getting into your kinks or you know, finding a new partner, spicing it up and all that stuff, doesn't really reach them. At the other extreme, you've got the people on the far right. Um, and there are many, many, uh, mostly Christian sex books, and I've read lots of them. And um, they, too, have a lot of important things to say. They talk about the uh, importance of family and the importance of monogamy um, and the importance of what they call purity and the importance of weight abstinence before marriage. And that all works for a lot of people, you know, within a certain culture. And, uh, but that, too, sometimes misses the point of, yeah, yeah, but, but how do we really do this? So this book is aimed at an audience which I think exists out there, which is in the middle, which says, you know, we don't judge anybody. People can do whatever they want. Um, however, we, we are a little bit traditionally inclined. I think most people want to do monogamy. Mm-hmm. And all this discussion these days about alternatives to monogamy, I don't think they really address most people's needs, because I think most people want to be monogamous. Um, and personally, uh, I'm a rather traditional person. Uh, I'm, I'm a traditionally religious person. And that's one of my uh, 
places that I'm coming from in writing this book is that um, they're both about relationships. It's your relationship with God. It's your relationship with your partner. And they both require the same kind of tending. And both relationships can't really be controlled. You can't control your feelings, and you can't feel inspired all the time. But it's important not to freak out or panic when you uh, don't feel inspiration. Instead, you just want to kind of settle down and open yourself up to it. Mm -hmm. So my book, although I do talk about alternatives to monogamy, it it really does uh, emphasize uh, what is going to work for most people, Mm -hmm. which is to just stay with one person. My clinical experience is that although there are some people who can be happily polyamorous, most people don't seem to be able to handle it. Yeah. And and that that notion or that belief system ties into some of the issues you mention in the book too. For example, there's a there's a lady you name her Jill that comes to you and and she feels guilty because she has these fantasies during sex, imagining some wicked man has captured her and locked her up and <laughs> and uh, and she imagines this and and climaxes and and she feels you know that she's doing something wrong. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so she wants to get rid of this. She says, how do I get rid of this fantasy? And there's a, a famous, uh, he's, he's, he's now deceased, uh, his name is Jack Moran, a famous sex therapist. He wrote a book called The Erotic Mind in the late 90s. And he said, uh, he says, never go to war against your sexual self. You will always lose. I've never <laughs> seen any exception to this rule. <laughs> and um, but she really, really wants to get rid of this fantasy. How do, how do I, how do I uproot it? Get it out of there. And I'm in a dilemma, which, uh, as a writer, is a good thing because dilemmas make for good writing. And so it's it's she and I as we dance around this dilemma, which is a very familiar one I encounter in in, in the office. And in order to get out of the dilemma, I have to show her some of the benefits um, that this fantasy provides for her. And uh, we have to get into her childhood a little bit, which sounds a little uh, traditional psychotherapy, but, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's necessary. And it turns out this person, um, the spoiler alert, um, that this person really was abandoned mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, that memory of abandonment unconsciously is always with her. And the, me- the image of being captured by somebody and she can't see him both reveals and disguises this memory. It reveals it because she can't see the person. They really have abandoned her. And it disguises it because she's captured by this person and they're still there and they're still watching her so she can't see it. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's almost like a dream image that it, it reveals and, um, and disguises uh, the, the underlying material. This turns out not to help her very much. And what we get on to in the next chapter, though, is what we sex therapists do for the most part is we get into the nitty-gritty of uh, what really does enable people to have happier experiences in bed. And it turns out that she's using this fantasy in order to compensate when she loses arousal. Mm -hmm. And as happens to a lot of women, she's cruising along, happily having sex with her husband, and all of a sudden, nothing. Mm -hmm. It's gone. She lost the string. And... She gets so frustrated and feels so terrible about herself. Why did this happen to me? Is there something wrong with me? And that's when she goes into the fantasy in order to get a climax. And I tell her, you know, it's not a very gentle way to treat yourself, given that the sexual self is infantile. You want to be a little more gentle with yourself. And that's a hard pill for her to swallow. But when she tries it, she says, okay, 
let me just take a deep breath and not get freaked out when that happens. It becomes a lot easier for her to, to get the moment back. Hmm. And at that point, now she has what you really want for patients because mental health equals flexibility. And now she has the flexibility. And she can use that fantasy if she wants to. It's still exciting, but she's not required to use it. She can do anything she wants. And that's when patients really feel, okay, now I got what I needed. Something that supports that is your description of the F word, and by that I mean foreplay. Um, <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> well, this is quite a show. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have a discussion of uh, a fingering and oral sex and how it's not for everybody and that sort of thing. And I think it's important to know that not everybody's the same about this stuff. It's very interesting. There's such a double standard because um, if you were to tell a group of uh, women that they were required to give a man oral sex during lovemaking, there would be outrage. This is a terrible thing. And yet we do this to guys. We say you are required to do cunnilingus. <laughs> it's important to women. You need to do it. And the truth is that there is just like women and oral sex. Some women love to have their partner's penis in their mouth, and some women really, really don't like it. And it's the same thing with guys. Some guys are wild about the vulva. They like its scent, they like its texture, they like everything about it. And other guys, it's just not their thing. You know, they could, they could swim in that water, but they don't want to drink it. And so uh, it's, it's important for those guys to be able to tell, you know, you know your feelings are not illegitimate. You, know, you have your own tastes. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, some of the, the mental barriers. Uh, you mentioned automatic negative thoughts or ants and also yeah. the introject, and I, th- those are interesting co- constructs to, to look at, I think. Well, one of the fun things about writing the book was the chance to take some uh, rather uh, complex and uh, kind of academic psychological topics and see if I could make them a little more user-friendly. Um, the idea of ants or automatic negative thoughts, A-N-T-S, is borrowed from what's called cognitive therapy in psychology, which is examining your negative thoughts, questioning them, and sometimes actually coming up with uh, newer versions of them, which are a more accurate reflection of, of, of reality. And so what I say is that, you know, ants or automatic negative thoughts can spoil a sexual experience just like real ants can spoil a picnic. And uh, I see this all the time. People are in bed and they suddenly get seized with a thought like this isn't going to work or he's not really into this or we just don't really have a good connection. And those thoughts, to state the obvious, are just not erotic. So um, I thought it was important to put ants in there because they're, they're, they're just like they're, they're everywhere. Ants are everywhere when it comes to sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to introjects, that's a really, really complicated uh, thing because it has to do with what in psychoanalysis we call internal object relations, the internal representations in your head of all the people who've been emotionally important to you in your life, particularly in your childhood. And we internalize people from childhood. We either identify with them or we keep them in our little stage uh, the, the, the theater of the mind uh, inside us, and they talk to us. Mm-hmm. They tell us things like the good ones say, you're doing a good job, you're going to be okay. And the bad ones say, I knew you couldn't do this, and you always mess things up. Mm-hmm. And so you get, into a, uh, you get into bed, and you've got a whole cast of characters inside both people's heads 
which are, you know, you know, it's like the old cartoons of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the old shoulder. You've got angels and devils and good characters and bad characters all shouting things at both people, and it's a wonder anything gets done. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a couple of things that, that you have recommended to clients. And, uh, and I, I said to you before we started the interview that I was pleased to know that in my relationship of 13 years, we intuitively have picked up on some of these things to practice. One of them is simmering. Let's talk about simmering. <laughs> it's great. I'm glad that you guys simmer, because simmer <laughs> is really the key. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, simmering is what high school students do. It's what teenagers naturally do. And teenagers understand that it feels good to feel excited. And they celebrate it. So a couple in high school, boyfriend and girlfriend, they have three minutes between classes. They meet at one of their lockers and hold each other, inhale each other's scent, mold to each other's bodies, breathe together, get excited. And then the bell rings, and they go off to their classes. Mm. And each of them feels kind of a little buzzed, and maybe they don't quite take in what's being said the first 10 minutes just because they're so dumb and happy because they've lost all those IQ points because they're really excited. (laughs) Married people forget to do that. Married people think, okay, well, we've got a job to do here. You know, are we going to get excited or are we not going to get excited? If we're not going to have sex, we're not going to get excited. You know, stay on your side of the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're going to have sex, all right, let's do it. Let's get excited. And that gets very, very boring. It's much better to say, you know what, we're going to get excited even when we can't have sex, just because it's fun to get excited. And a lot of women don't know this. A lot of women think that they're, if they indirectly, because of what they've worn to bed or how they look, when they're naked, if they've been responsible for producing an erection in their male partner, that they're responsible for bringing that erection to an end um, by uh, bringing the guy to orgasm. It's just not true. A woman can uh, be uh, responsible for giving a man an erection. He can be perfectly happy to have an erection, and he should be. And erections can go up and down. And just because you got excited, it doesn't mean you have to finish the deed. Mm-hmm. Very and good. it sounds like you and your partner uh, have uh, discovered that on your own, as many people do. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, many people I talk to about this, and they look at me like I've got three heads. <laughs> so I thought it was important to put it into the book that just because you're excited, it doesn't mean you're going to have sex. You have to have sex, and also you don't want to uh, uh, limit getting excited if you can't have sex. So right. instead of simmering your husband or wife goodbye, instead of kissing your husband or wife goodbye in the morning, simmer them goodbye. You know, put a little erotic charge into it. They'll love it. They'll make, enjoy it. Make and the dra- go- drive to work much more pleasant. <laughs> exactly. They might get lost on the way to work, but that's good once in a while. <laughs> Okay. Well, we're from Texas, so we have to talk about your version of the two-step. It's not the same. Oh, as the I'm dance. so happy you picked up on that. Yeah. No, we're not going clogging or anything. You okay. Know. Um, the two-step is a technique that I developed in collaboration with lots of couples in my office as an alternative to what's usually called in the sex therapy world the sex date. And most people have heard of sex dates. That's where you say you know, we don't have sex enough, so we're just going to commit to once a week, put it on the calendar, and we'll show up in bed and we'll have sex, right? (laughs) Every sex therapist in the world talks about scheduling sex dates, and it's important that they talk about that. The unfortunate part is that they don't work because you show up in bed and you're ready. You you figure, I'm going to have sex. That's the agenda. 
and it feels like work, and your inner two-year-old says, well, the hell with that. You know, I'm not. I mean, I'm going on strike. I don't feel like it. So you never want to do that. Instead, what I suggest is you don't make a date to have sex. You make a date to two-step. Step two is having sex or doing whatever erotically you're going to do. Step one is a mindfulness practice. It's you go to bed, take off as much of your clothes as you feel comfortable with, and just hang out together doing absolutely nothing. You have no agenda in the world. And the inner two-year-old loves that because it's free of all obligations. He could talk about whatever's on his mind. Um, don't want to get any deep conversations or anything that involves that's going to involve much intellect, but you know, you just chat a little bit. You breathe, as in any other mindfulness practice. You kind of direct your attention down to your feet. Mm, how are the toes doing? That's nice. You know, where where are the points of contact between your body and the mattress? Mm, that's nice. And inhale the scent of the room. And if you're fortunate enough not to live in Manhattan and you can actually see the sky out the window, you know, enjoy the color of the sky. And uh, then you turn your attention to your partner. And by then, you're in a state of mind where you're much more receptive to the experience. Because sexual inspiration is, is like religious inspiration. You, you get yourself to wherever you're going, but then the, 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 it's fundamentally passive. Um, you just wait for inspiration to reach you, and you have no idea exactly where it's going to come from. Mm-hmm. Tremendous. Uh, there's so much more we have to talk about, but unfortunately we're out of time. I want to I note that, that you have a great appendix with how to untie people who are in sexual knots, and it's, it's well described. <laughs> and there's some great... Uh, material in there that that, uh, has been helpful to me to read. Um, Topics that we haven't discussed, like when a man starts to feel his wife is a sure thing, he stops chasing her, and what happens in long-lasting relationships. This is a rich book full of a lot of help for couples. Uh, We've been talking with Dr. Stephen Snyder. The book is Love Worth Making. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I thank you for listening. I remind you, if you don't catch our regularly scheduled broadcast on your NPR affiliate, you can also find us at YouTube, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Make it a great day.